see the new technology out of here. Note, 
We're also looking for more people to join the committee. We have a big committee, but a lot of us are Temple students who might be leaving us here. So if anyone's going to be here this year and next, please come up to someone dressed in a suit and have a word with us. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll now hand over to Mark, who's going to be running the event. Uh, thanks, Ray. Uh, welcome, everybody. Uh, it's a really uh, good to have you all here. Um, it's a real privilege for us to have two speakers of such uh, high calibre, uh, Professor Steve Keane from the University of Western Sydney and Dr. Pontus Rindau from our own Faculty uh, of Economics here at Cambridge. Um, I'm just going to do a quick intro, uh, then we'll get into it. Um, Professor Keane is going to speak for 40 minutes, uh, then um, Dr. Rindau is going to um, provide some comments for 20 minutes, and then we'll have about 20 minutes to half an hour for questions. So starting with Professor King, uh, well, uh, many of you will know he's currently one of the most prominent heterodox voices uh, in the world, uh, heterodox economist voices in the world. He's been a vocal critic of mainstream uh, neoclassical economic theory for more than a decade, uh, and in particular that inadequate treatment of the financial sector and macroeconomic models. Um, from 2005, he began publicly warning about the imminent uh, risk of financial crisis due to the unsustainable increases in debt levels. And having done so, he recently beat out Rubini to be awarded the Revere Prize for being the economist who first and most cogently warned the world of a crisis. Professor Keane has an increasing number of supporters, uh, both in academia and in public policy circles. Uh, I know from my personal experience, I worked with the Treasury in New Zealand, um, often perceived as a, a neoclassical, uh, neoclassical thought, he provoked a great deal of uh, debate there just in the last couple of months. Um, but he's also upset many in the mainstream establishment. Uh, some of you may have seen Paul Krugman's uh, descriptions of him as a heretic earlier in the year, uh, and there was some stirring in the media uh, after that, and it looked to me like you rather enjoyed some of I that. Had a lot of it. <laughs> I have to think, send Paul a Christmas present for making my year so much fun. <laughs> so tonight, uh, Professor Keane's talk is entitled Rerouting Economics The Need for a Strictly Monetary Theory of Capitalism. Uh, Doctor, uh, as I mentioned, Dr. Rendell will then take the floor, provide some reflections on Professor King's approach. Uh, many of you will know Dr. Rendell, of course. Uh, he specializes in macroeconomic theory. His recent publications examine a variety of different macroeconomic issues, including most recently a very interesting article on fiscal policy uh, effects in an unemployment crisis. Uh, I'm not sure if Dr. Rendell would uh, class himself as a pure fiscal economist. Um, but having, set, having been um, taught by him recently, I certainly know he thinks that uh, mainstream economics at least has some useful frameworks to offer for analysing economic issues. Okay, so as a metrodox. Metrodox. Bring back trendy to the Cambridge uh, economics faculty. Um, so I, yeah, he'll be speaking from this perspective. Um, without further ado, I'll hand over okay. to Professor King. Okay. Thank you. Just uh, getting my recording technology going here again. I think it works. Okay, well, uh, I like the title that was chosen by the group here for my talk about rebooting economics, and I've made it the subtitle The Need for a Strictly Monetary Theory of Capitalism. So I've got a paper which is based on this, but I'm happy to distribute around a draft, but it's still worth sharing. Uh, and I want to go through how the approach of macroeconomics developed from Keynes' time on, and where I think the major hole in Keynes' foundations, which led to the neoclassical revival, actually came from. And if you read the general theory, read the preface, you'll find this statement of him talking about the general theory in relation to the treatise on money. And he said, this is a study of what determines the scale of output and employment as a whole. 
Now here's where I see this, this, is, the, this, this is where it went off the rails. Whilst it's found that money enters in, in an essential and peculiar manner, the technical details fall into the background. In other words, there is no discussion of money creation, banks, etc., in detail in the, in the, tree, in, in the book. He said, what, what he says is a monetary economy is one where our views about the future determine what happens now. He said, but in analysing that, we fall back on, our, uh, on supply and demand, our fundamental theory of value. So he's back in the neoclassical foundation supply and demand analysis. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever seen this wonderful work by Axel Leinhofer called Life Amongst the Econ. Has anybody seen it? Okay, I've made a link to the paper. Your evening reading is this book. Uh, this little, little title, it's an anthropological exploration of the Econ tribe. And he, he described the tribe as being uh, uh, living in the northern tundra, living north of the other groups of tribes like the sociologues and the politicogs, and they wouldn't talk to because they didn't build models. And models are really important to them. And here are the two totems, the two totemic models of the tribe of the Econ. The totem of the macro and the totem of the micro. ISLM and S&D. Yeah. Is it any wonder that that happened from Keynes's starting point by saying supply and demand is a fundamental theory of value? So even though I've been very critical of Hicks developing this theory, you can see reasons why this is part of what people could say is a legitimate extension of what Keynes argued in the general theory. But when he got involved in the debate over the general theory in 37, before his heart attack in 38, you had a, a range of ideas. I think he really broke out of the Marshallian shell. He was still largely inside and writing much of the general theory. And in discussing the role of how an investment is financed, uh, he said, finance, you may need finance for investment before the investment takes place. And notice the other statement. That is to say, before the corresponding saving has taken place. So rather than rigid I equals S arguments, which is part of standard interpretation of macro, Keynes is now saying there's a timing issue and maybe investment occurs before savings, so you certainly can't say they're going to be equal to each other at all times. And he says there has to be some way to bridge that gap. If you want to have investment before you have the savings that will be generated by the investment, you have to have a source of finance. Now he makes a statement here which I'm going to show is wrong later, but he said the service may, it's true to say it can be provided either by the new issue markets so issuing shares or by the banks. He says which it is makes no difference. That's true to the individual entrepreneur and firm. It's not true to the economy. But he said, if the entrepreneur avails himself uh, by, by arranging overdraft before the, the bank, it'll be true the market's commitments will be in excess of actual savings to date. Now, that's quite outside the I equals S arguments that still dominate how we think Keynes' macro is supposed to be done. And looking back on it, he really said he had three ideas of the demand for money in the general theory, the transactions, precautionary, and speculative motive. But here he's saying there's a fourth, I now think I should have included. And that's the finance demand for money, which is what he's talking about here. So you can find the gem of a very, very different approach to macro in Keynes at that stage. Now, I don't regard Keynes as the world's greatest economist. Have you got the title anybody? I'd give it to Joseph Schumpeter. And if you look at Schumpeter at much the same time, writing before the general theory, you find he had a deeper understanding of money and its role in the economy than Keynes had, published two years later in the general theory. And to what is really the, the thing we all know that Schumpeter focuses upon is the role of the entrepreneur in capitalism. But his definition of an entrepreneur is the sort of way you should do assumptions in economics. You know the old saying, assume stands for make an ass out of you and me? 
Okay? You don't? Okay. One worth using in the next uh, economics lecture. But what he did was make assumptions that made it harder to prove his case. So we all know there are entrepreneurs out there who've already got money. He said, I want to explain how an entrepreneur gets money when they don't have any to begin with. So his definition of an entrepreneur was somebody with a good idea but no money. And therefore, to put that idea into effect, they had to raise money. And he said, they are therefore the typical debtor. So we've been caught up in all the housing bubbles so far and the household debt. From Kim's point of view, it was the capitalist who was the main, the, 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 the typical debtor <coughs> in the capitalist society was the entrepreneur. Where they got money is from the banks. He said, but it wasn't a case of new purchasing, of transferring money from savings, savers to, to, to borrowers, which is the standard loanable funds position. Creation of new purchasing power out of nothing. So you had a much richer understanding of the banking sector from Schumpeter. And what you can argue from that is, as he himself argued, total demand is a sum of demand coming from incomes from selling goods and services now, which he called fully covered credit plus debt finance expenditure by entrepreneurs, which he said is greater than fully covered credit. What he called total credit, total demand in the economy, was the sum of money from, from, turn, from, from turnover of existing goods and services, including labour, and also creation of your spending power by the banks. <coughs> now, to a lot of people, and I've been through this ad nauseum with my own post-Keynesian colleagues in the last four or five years, <coughs> that sounds like double counting. But one person we all know is the foundation now of the development of post-Keynesian economics is Hyman Minsky. And he struggled with this whole idea of how can you have debt finance demand adding to aggregate demand when at the same time when you measure income and you measure expenditure, they're identical. So he said if you look at this basic accounting identity, you can rewrite it as saying that the gap between savings and investment plus the gap between taxation and government is necessarily equal to zero. But he said, the surplus is the difference between the receipts and, and expenditure. So you can now write an explanation saying, overall, the sum of all sectoral balances is zero, which is a large part of what you'd hear now of modern monetary theory. However, he then pointed out that is an after-the-event accounting identity. It's what you record after all the transactions have occurred. But he said each of those sets of transactions is the result of market processes where ex ante, before the event, saving investment plans are reconciled. Okay. So he's making a distinction with ex ante and ex post. So he tried to put this together in a mathematical framework and what he concluded that if you're going to have growing demand, you must have rising aggregate demand over time. And he said for that to happen, while still getting sectoral balances overall, some sectors have to be financing their spending by emitting debt. <coughs> so he necessarily ties up growing debt with growing aggregate demand and yet concludes that that is then consistent with sectoral balances. So this is in Minsky. Again, a lot of my post-Keynesian colleagues I think, don't realise that this was an argument that doesn't come just from me initially, it comes from Minsky and Schumpeter. So taking a look at uh, the ex-post situation, you'll say these are the result of spending being financed partially by debt. But in the end, the reconciliation will occur, you add up all the monies, you'll find income is equal to expenditure and recorded, ex-post, but ex-ante they differ. So he's arguing that if you're going to have growing effective demand while still maintaining sectoral balances, part of that demand has to be financed by new money, and that new money, which is created by the banking sector, adds additional demand to the economy. So you have an inextricable link, and that's why I say it's we have to have a monetary theory of macroeconomics. Endogenous money and demand exceeding income are linked together. If you don't have endogenous creation of money, you won't have a growing economy. You can't analyse capitalism without analysing the process of growth. 
So we have to have a monetary vision of capital capitalism. Now, a bit of mathematics for you on the last day of the undergraduate year, I'm told. It's quite simple to do this in a sectoral balances approach. If you look at income and say income will be either wages or profits, and then divide profits into the profits that are distributed to, to uh, shareholders versus that's retained by the firm, I can then explain incomes overall as having those three categories. And looking at expenditure, that will be on either consumer goods or capital goods. I'll bring in government sector and asset markets shortly. So expenditure, when you classify it, will be either on consumption goods or investment goods. Now, there's two sources of demand for consumer goods. Workers can buy them or capitalists can. So if you look at consumption by workers, that'll be wages plus whatever change in debt workers have. And ditto for capitalists. Now, that change in debt can be positive or negative. Positive, you're accumulating more debt. Negative, you're what you might call savings. I don't actually like that term in macroeconomics. And the same thing can apply to capitalists. The change in debt figure can be positive or negative. So that's your overall consumption. Let's put it all together with investment as well. So investment you can finance from retained earnings or by the firm sector borrowing money and spending that money into the economy. So investment will be retained earnings plus the change in the firm sector's investment debt. And that can also be negative. They can also pay that down as well as extending it. Now putting the two equations together, there's expenditure. I'll expand up what consumption is. And let's do some cancellation. <coughs> Rearrange the terms. So I've got the income at one part and the debt on the other subtract income from expenditure, and we get a few nice, simple cancellations. What you're left with, the gap between expenditure and income, is the change in debt. So expenditure is income plus, plus the change in debt. <coughs> I've got a bit of a, a frog in my throat. <coughs> Spray some water, perhaps? Thank you. Great. So that's the first stage of just looking at the uh, goods market alone. Thank you. But it looks like double counting to people. <coughs> and I think that arises because of confusion between ex ante and ex post. Where conventional thinking, including a lot of the modern monetary theory accounting balance approach, is after the event, ex post. So you're recording, comparing recorded expenditure and recorded income, and you will necessarily find they're the same. But being in a demand driven monetary economy, expenditure precedes income. And that's what Keynes realised as well in the debate he was having with Tinbergen and so on. He said he prefers to the, to the third source of confusion that investment decisions may involve temporary demand for money before it is carried out. So planned investment has to occur its financial provision before investment takes place. Now, that's the, the distinction we need to make. The reason we get confused is there is an equality of recorded income and recorded expenditure, even though they differ after the event. And the reason for this is that when we're looking at terms of wages and profits, that's a turnover of existing money. If you can regard it as a smooth process, turning over the existing money stock. But when debt's injected in, it's when one of you goes shopping up in one of those shops in Cambridge, swipes your credit card, borrow, creates money which you then hand over to the vendor, creates debt which gets recorded against your bank, bank balance. That is an, an instantaneous, discontinuous injection into that continuous flow. Now, after it's gone in, you've boosted incomes. Because you borrowed that money, you've increased the, the profit of the firm you've bought from. But if you hadn't borrowed the money, their profit wouldn't have gone up. So it's a timing issue. When you record it after the event, you'll find your recorded expenditure equals recorded income, where your change in debt has now become income for that firm. Let's go through the maths there. 
First of all, a visual picture. You can regard this flow here as being the flow of wage and profits over time. And that's income at time t, before the event, effectively. Then you have the change in debt when you go shopping at the credit card. And that is expenditure also at time t, where it includes that jump that's come in for the additional debt. But you, when you record it, you're going to be recording going backwards to that point of discontinuity. And that's what you'll record. It'll be identical to expenditure. So that particular discrete event phenomenon in a continuous flow system is what's confused people about whether this is double counting or not. So you're looking backwards in time. And since you have a discontinuous function, you need to take the limit as it approaches that point from above when you're recording backwards as an accountant would do. So the limit from above is going to be this point. But the limit from below is going to be this point plus that bit. So expenditure at time t will be equal to income at time t, t recorded from after the event, which will be income at time t plus the change in debt. Now that's how you tie it all together. Now, there's also a wonderful trick of mathematics here, and I'm lucky to now to be working with the Fields Institute, which is the world's leading applied mathematics centre. And the professor of mathematics there pointed out this little thing to me that I, I learned decades ago when I learned uh, Lerberg integration, but uh, not living and breathing mathematics, I certainly didn't remember at the time. If you actually classify each of these bits, you've got income before the debt injection is going to be less than expenditure. But income after the time of injection will be the same as expenditure. And therefore, you can say expenditure now is the recorded income now, working from backwards, which will be income now plus the change in debt. And the simple way to say that expenditure is equal to income before the debt injection plus the debt injection. That's all there is to it. Okay? It looks like double counting when you don't look through the sophisticated way, but it's actually quite straightforward. So after the event, expenditure is income plus the change in debt. Uh, before the event, pardon me. After the event, expenditure is equal to recorded income. They're quite consistent with each other. No error going on. So having sectoral balances and effective demand, I, I want to bring back the term effective demand now. This is just to be by, by Nathan Tankus. Uh, and I think it's a good idea. It's a term which has died out. I want to grab it and use it for the idea of effective, meaning what actually affects change, which is income plus change in debt. And when you look at the mathematics as well, it's the point about the Leverg integration beforehand, what you have is a flow of expenditure and income which are identical, except that discontinuity is where debt is injected. Now, if you're going to work out the overall expenditure over a period of time, you're actually integrating those two flows. And there's a rule of mathematics that function that differ only at finitely many points of discontinuity must have identical integrals. So what people have been seeing out of the sectoral balances is simply that property of integration. Okay. So we can combine sectoral balance with income being exp expenditure being income plus change in debt. Now, if I generalise this further, and I'll go through this fairly rapidly given time constraints here, but it's all fairly simple logic. If you look at expenditure now, including asset markets, and once we bring in finance into economics, we must also include that money is not just spent buying goods and services, it's buying, both buying goods and services which are newly produced and existing assets. So you can't separate economics and finance anymore. They have to be integrated. So looking, say, just by speculation on assets by capitalists only, just to make it simpler to do the notation, then they can speculate from distributed profits, which they use as speculation. So now breaking down that distributed profits into consumption plus speculation, or they can borrow money for speculation. So expenditure now is going to be uh, on assets will be equal to 
the money they use from distributed of profits to speculate plus the change in debt. And you get the same cancellations coming out of that. So you've got to start, again, from this expenditure being different from income. And of course, you're going to have positive and negative phases on it. We saw a huge positive phase in the last 20 years until 2007. Of course, it collapsed <coughs> after that. They're bringing a government in as well. Expenditure now is going to be including net government spending. And that net government spending, of course, has been changing government debt. They do cancellations again, the government debt change turns up there as well. It's independent of the change in private debt. One does not necessarily cause the other, which is the mistake in seeing it from a sectoral balances point of view. One will influence the other, clearly, as they, they have done. But there's independent ways of creating money and therefore adding additional demand into the economy. So you get this, this is why I say it's necessary, you must have a monetary theory of macroeconomics because if some expenditure is debt financed and that increases borrower spending power without sacrificing what savers have, which is the loanable funds idea, then aggregate demand is going to differ from income and it will exceed it when the economy is growing. So you must include the change in debt as part of your macroeconomics. And this now lets me explain both the great moderation, as neoclassical economists called it before it blew up, and what they now call the lesser depression. So back to the mass again for a moment. But seeing again those two sources of demand, of demand, income and borrowing, and two categories of supply, goods and services and existing financial assets, Schumpeter's argument, I do recommend you read The Theory of Economic Development. If you haven't read it, get it out. Forget about capitalism, socialism and democracy. If you buy that book, you're only contributing to Schumpeter's retirement fund and he's already dead. Okay. Don't bother with that one. But read Theory of Economic Development. So he said income spent mainly on consumption, change in debt is the main source of funding for investment. And what Minsky added in being Schumpeter's PhD student was that change in debt also finances Ponzi behaviour. So if you look at wages and profits plus change in debt, you can argue that largely speaking wages and profits get dependent on consumption, some profits go across to finance investment, the parts are not, that is, are not distributed, and the change in debt mainly finances investment and net turnover on the asset markets. Of course, we don't sell every asset in existence every year, so you've got to break it down a bit. So that, those arguments, I can now say in aggregate demand or effective demand, income plus change in debt, is going to be equivalent to GDP, expenditure on goods and services, plus net turnover in the asset markets. And again, you can break that down into the price of assets, the quantity and the fraction of turnover in any time period. Now looking at this in terms of both macro and finance, change in debt is going to have an impact on GDP. We clearly see that in the data. Whereas debt acceleration, if I look at the rate of change of effective demand, then I now get an acceleration term turning up on the right hand side, on the left hand side of the demand, demand source, and as well as affecting change in GDP, that's going to have a major link to change in asset prices. Now that again explains why asset bubbles have to burst. Because they're driven not by simply rising debt, but by accelerating debt. And not even debt, not even with Goldman Sachs' help, can accelerate forever. So you have to see breakdowns in asset markets. Now, taking a look at this, let's take a look at the American economy here. I can do the same thing for England, but in fact your data is even crazier than the Americans. The blue line is government debt, which is the thing all the politicians obsess about. And I'm pleased to say a lot of my neoclassical colleagues are equally agreeing with me and saying they shouldn't be worried about public debt right now. So that's one area where, across economics in general, you're getting agreement that there's an obsession driving what politicians are doing rather than any particular justifiable economic logic. On that one, Paul Krugman and I definitely agree. The dotted line is GDP. The red line is private debt. Now, you can notice which one is bigger. Pretty bloody obvious. 
Notice what happened to private debt. It rose, accelerated, and then fell, and is now flatlining. So what I'm now going to do is take that data and now look at the, it's still the GDP figure, but now the change in debt. And the red line is change in private sector debt, which peaked in 2008 and changed over the previous year at $4.5 trillion, pretty much, and then fell by $3 trillion. So that turnaround and the, the growth, massive growth of debt to massive contraction of debt meant about a $7 trillion fall in demand in a $14 trillion economy if you look just at GDP alone. So rather than going from 14 to 13 and a half, which is all that looking at GDP will tell you, you actually went from about 18 and a half to 11 and a half trillion. That's why it was such a huge shock. Now to put that together, this chart takes those changes in debt and stacks them on top of GDP. So what you have here, the black line is GDP, the red line is GDP plus change in private debt, and the blue line is GDP plus change in both private and public debt. And now you can see why the crisis began when it did shortly after BNP shut down its funds that were exposed to the subprime market. Huge plunge. And then the gap between the two tells you the amount of government spending that's going on. It's about half a trillion dollars up here when they're busy bombing the hell out of Iraq. Uh, down here, one and a half trillion when they're hitting the American economy with as much stimulus as they can manage, both because they have to through a fall in revenue, but also through discretionary programs. At the moment, because that rate of, the level of debt's flatlining, on an annual basis there is no change at the level of private debt. That's why the red line now touches the black there. But that extra $1 trillion is coming in from government spending. And of course they're now talking about knocking off half that on the 31st of December with a fiscal cliff. Now my feeling is when that happens, as well as causing a you know, half, a, half a trillion dollar drop in aggregate demand from the government spending, it may restart the private sector deleveraging. So rather than private flatlining, it may control go down again. So there'd be a double whammy hitting the American economy out of that, out of that uh, combination. Now here's, that's showing the, the data on the scale of debt alone. What about its correlation with the real world? Again, from a neoclassical loanable funds point of view, there should be no relationship between change in debt or level of debt or anything about debt and economic macro variables, except after we hit the zero lower bound, which is Paul Krugman's proposition and the, and the argument he had with me, and the proposition he also makes in End This Depression Now. I think you can all see there's a correlation. It's point nine, minus 0.92 over the last 23 years. You don't get correlations that high unless you're talking something causal as well, across that range of phenomena. If you then take a look at the acceleration of debt and change in employment, the deceleration of debt that hit us when, the, when the, uh, the, the global financial crisis began was actually bigger than deceleration during the Great Depression. But it turned around quite rapidly. Notice how we've gone from massively decelerating debt to accelerating debt, and now it's actually slowing down. Okay. So there's been a debt finance boost of the economy for some time, which is now running out. That should also hit the fiscal cliff. Correlation there between the second derivative of debt with respect to time and the first derivative of employment is 0.76. Again, over, and notice the time period there, over 55 years. But the scale of this stuff is enormous. You can only ignore it if you have an a priori argument that says don't worry about private debt and you refuse to look at the data, which is still the state that I find for most neoclassical economists. This is now looking at mortgage acceleration and change in house prices in America. 
what people thought of themselves being very clever in buying and selling and playing that game of flip that house was simply riding the dynamics of accelerating mortgage debt and then decelerating, of course, when the crunch hit. Correlation there over 20-something years, 0.83. And the Dow Jones, even given all the volatility we know is built into the stock market, when you look at the annual change in the Dow Jones and the acceleration of debt, you get a reasonable correlation there as well. But of course, I can't, that's just looking at all debt. Of course, we don't use all debt to gamble on the stock market. I couldn't find American data on specifically stock market oriented debt, but I did find Australia. Now, here's the acceleration of margin debt in Australia and change in the Australian stock market index. Correlation 0.8 over a 10 year period, 11 years. So that the force that change in debt has in driving the economy, I think, is overwhelming. Now, the trouble is, most economists, Neoclassical and to some extent otherwise still implicitly think or explicitly in a loanable funds world. And this is Krugman in his debate with me. Now I love him for this line because I used to go blue in the face trying to convince people that neoclassical economists include neither, neither debt nor banks nor money in their modelling. Now I can just quote a Nobel Prize winner. Much easier on me. He's all for including banking sectors where they're relevant, but why are they relevant to a story about debt and leverage? Now he then goes apart and, and deconstructs my argument about why banks uh, matter and increase the money supply. He says, well, why does that matter? And he then says that I assert that lending is an addition to aggregate demand, which he doesn't get at all. And his reasoning here is, if I decide to cut back on my spending and stash the funds in a bank, which lends them out to someone else, this doesn't have to represent a net increase in demand. And that's the loanable funds vision. Whereas what I work from is endogenous money. And the, one of the best statements was actually made by a, a, a vice president of the New York Fed fighting a rearguard action, trying to stop them following monetarism back in the days when Milton Friedman was thought to be really cool, back in the late 1960s. And he said, in the real world, banks extend credit, creating deposits in the process, and look for the reserves later. In other words, you can't control the lending by controlling bank reserves. So what you've got with the standard neoclassical vision, this is the idea of a patient agent with lots of money, an impatient agent with none, and the patient lends to the impatient and overall, the patient has less spending power now, impatient has more spending power, only a marginal change in aggregate demand, and banks you can ignore. That's the conventional neoclassical picture. My picture is rather more like this. You have an entrepreneur approaches the bank for a loan, and the bank says, that's a great idea, here's a million dollars, and by the way, you owe us a million dollars. A simultaneous creation of both debt and new money, which then is spent into the economy. And that was Holmes's point. In the real world, banks extend credit, creating deposits in the process, the simultaneous creation process, and look for the reserve later. So you get additional spending power in the economy, which does not sacrifice the spending power of existing agents. And therefore, aggregate demand is, is greater than income alone. So you have to include change in debt in macroeconomics as a major source, an essential source, of um, aggregate demand. Pardon my animation not being right here. Um, but I've now put this together in a software package, which I'd like you all to have a, a, a download and a playoff called Minsky. It's open source and free software. And what it lets me do is create a bank as part of a dynamic modelling tool. I'll show you this in a moment. And you then put what the flows are going into the bank, and the accounts come out the other end. And you can tie that into a model which should be either strictly monetary, or monetary and physical, or a combination of the, or just physical alone. <laughs> So if I now put Paul Krugman's vision into this, I have a patient agent lending to an impatient agent. Now, of course, neoclassical economists don't have model of banks. 
So I had to invent what Paul Krugman's model would look like. And the idea being to have both patient agent and inpatient agent and workers all having bank accounts, which are liabilities of the banking sector. And the patient agent would lend to the inpatient somehow. That's, that's the idea that he's got lending <coughs> intermediary. The inpatient agent would then hire workers. The workers would produce output. And then all the various social classes, including the inpatient agent, consume. And you put it together in the model. And when you model it, that's the sort of outcome you get. The amount of money turns up mainly in the inpatient agent's hands, goes down in the, in, uh, the, the patients, and the aggregate demand flatlines. And then you can change the parameters of lending as much as you like. You have very little impact on GDP. It's at the margin. But if I put together my model, where I have banking, banks making a loan from the asset side to the liability side, here's another blind spot that gets in the way of neoclassicals understanding that. They say because assets equal liabilities, you can forget about it. It doesn't matter. Rise in both, who cares? But money is a liability of the banking sector to the non-bank parts of the economy. Therefore, a balanced rise in the assets and liabilities of the banking sector adds additional money to the economy, increases aggregate demand. So you can't ignore it just because of that balance item. So I put that together in my approach. So I've now got the banking sector doing lending to the firm sector. Firm then hiring workers, workers producing output, and the firm sector paid, they're still borrowing from the patient agent, pay the agent, the agent dividends and they all consume. When I put that together, I get a model like this, where aggregate demand rises over time. And if I change the lending parameters, which I can do over here, I'll show you that in a simulation shortly if I have any time. Cautious about that. Okay. Uh, then you get a very, very different world. Lending matters dramatically. So I've embedded that model inside this presentation here. So what you then find is when you link, if you then link your monetary world to your physical world because the money flow of wages buys a certain number of workers, the money flow of investment buys new capital goods, you can tie the two together and you then get a, a link system with you know, price dynamics and wage dynamics turning up as well. All the stuff we normally implicitly do, you instead do explicitly. So I tie it all together, I've got Phillips curve arguments as well as investment decisions by firms, lending by banks and debt repayment. And what I get out of it is a cyclical system. Now that again is something economists haven't got their heads around. They think cycles are imposed by behavioural assumptions and so on. No, the cycles we see in the real world and cycles we get in models that are properly specified, dynamic models, are the product of innate non-linearities. If you multiply wages by labour, you've got effectively a semi-quadratic. Putting the two together as variables, you've then got a non-linearity at the heart of your model. So when I bring in nonlinear relationships in my modelling, it isn't to generate the cycles, it's to restrain them so they're in sensible bounds. And what you get out of it, when I put the model together, um, this is the, the full model that comes out of the system I'm talking about right now, which is sitting and has been sitting for over two years now in the Journal of Economic Behaviour and Organisation, but it's turning up in the Econ Record sometime early next year, I'm pleased to say. Uh, what you get is a model that generates cycles. So that, this is the stylized data now for the American economy. I've taken the data and smoothed it to show you unemployment, inflation, and the part that neoclassical theory ignores, the debt-to-GDP ratio. When I run my model, without having calibrated it yet, that's the sort of dynamics I get. And my objective is to get qualitatively close to the behaviour of capitalism. I think trying to be empirically accurate in future predictions is naive in a complex system and close to impossible anyway. 
What we should be trying to do is get models that have the same qualitative behaviour as the social system in which we live. And as Minsky put it decades ago, that to analyse capitalism, you must have a model which can generate a Great Depression. If you haven't got a model that can do that, you haven't got a model of capitalism. And that's fundamentally, I think, the problem with neoclassical economics. It can't generate a crisis unless it binds the Federal Reserve. And of course, guess who's running the Federal Reserve? There's a certain justice in that. Now, I've since taken the model, I haven't built, uh, I've written a paper about this yet, but I have built the model to the stage where it's multi-sectoral. So I've got input-output dynamics, sectors needing to buy outputs of other sectors to produce their own outputs. And what I get out of that, again, is an inherently cyclical economy. So I think we can actually do what Valra tried to do by not doing what Valra did and assuming this equilibrium. We have to abandon the obsession with equilibrium to get to the stage where we have a decent theory of economics. And that will get us finally free of the myths of barter, equilibrium and optimality, which I think have frozen us back in the 19th century when sensible systems have moved to the 21st and now see virtually everything as a complex system. Thank you. So thank you very much, Steve, for this uh, presentation, and, and uh, thank you to the. Yeah. Uh, okay. And thank you very much to the.
pluralist society for, for uh, creating these uh, venues. I'm very happy to be here to discuss this paper. So just a, a quick outline. You can see I've been a little bit cheeky already here. I'm going to speak about Metrodox Economics, The Empire Strikes Back. Uh, the only um, serious title, endogenous money, and then I, I could embrace myself, but I had to write debunking keenonomics. Uh, <laughs> I think that pun has been made infinitely many times, so sorry for boring. Um, so I, I believe, so I, I read two papers of Keynes, which, which uh, his slides were based on, and part of the stuff I will be talking about, everything is taken from these two papers, not everything will be uh, was in his slides. But, so I believe that Keane actually starts from quite a neoclassical observation. Um, and it's a quote from one of his papers, uh, which reads, in the macroeconomy, everything comes from somewhere, and it goes somewhere. Uh, this uh, comes from, Godley, what was his first name? William Godley. When? Yeah. So that's where the quote is from. And I think this has motivated what is called stock flow consistent models. Um, Krugman phrases this as my spending is your income and your spending is my income and it's just another way of saying the same thing that everything comes from somewhere and goes somewhere and everything that goes somewhere will pop up somewhere else. It's an ecosystem. Uh, the rest of us neoclassicals, we call it general equilibrium. Um, because all general equilibrium models are stock flow consistent but not all stock flow consistent models are general equilibrium models. So the question is, what is the difference between these two? By the way, I'm very happy to see that, that heterodox economists believe that stock flow consistency is important because I think a stock flow inconsistent model would be uh, ludicrous. Uh, this would be general equilibrium. Uh, just as an example, I just took a, a silly model. I'm saying given prices, so I actually focus on a competitive equilibrium while there are many types of equilibria out there. Uh, given prices and some government actions, because normally we treat the government as exogenous, we say that the consumption decisions and savings decisions where bond represent bonds, uh, where B represent bonds, they solve the household's optimization problem. Capital and labor solve the firm's optimization problem. And then we say that some markets clear at the very least. And for instance, I'm saying that savings by the household sector is equal to debt by the government sector plus investment, and output is equal to consumption plus investment plus government spending. Maybe some money demand is equal to money supply, and so on and so on. Uh, this is what I call a Keynesian equilibrium, um, not a Keynesian equilibrium. And the difference is, uh, if you see the two first bullets in which you say that given prices, these solve the household's optimization problem, so they solve the firm's optimization problem. Instead of having these, you postulate some behavioral uh, equation. I just made some up here, that consumption is a function of current output or current income, the interest rate and whatnot. Okay, you put in whatever you like. Uh, but with stock, fl uh, stock flow consistent models, you also uh, impose uh, that market's clear. So what comes from some place will go to some place else in the economy. So whatever is saved by someone shows up that borrowed money for someone else and so on. Uh, whatever is produced is either consumed or invested <coughs> or inventories or whatever you need to do. Uh, we also augment these with some differential equations that are linking the present to the future and that I believe is across the board. So, it, you know, in many ways, these stock flow consistent, I'm very sympathetic to them. I think it's a, it's a good idea, and I think that it links many approaches that I'm accustomed to in, in more neoclassical economics with a heterodox approach. And that's why I call it maybe this is a metrodox equilibrium. Uh, 
Professor Bibichari, who's probably one of the most sinister of the neoclassicals in Minnesota, um, he said in front of Congress, he said, if you have an interesting and internally consistent story, then that story can be illustrated in a DSG model. Otherwise, the story most likely to be inconsistent. I think that can be changed now to if you have an interesting and internally consistent story, then the story can be illustrated in a stock flow consistent model. Otherwise, the story is most likely to be inconsistent. I don't think the DSG part is necessary. Now, something bugged me, but this was really the last model uh, 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 Steve showed. Uh, and it's really silly criticism. I'm saying that Keynes stresses disequilibrium in one of these papers, but in the model, says law is actually holdings output is produced using capital and is inelastic. Uh, given capital, says law holds. Uh, expectations are stressed, but the model is deterministic. Um, it's completely absent from any type of forward-looking behavior. Um, it's hard to incorporate expectations when you don't have forward-looking agents. Uh, there are also multiple equilibria in these models. Uh, however, there's no theory presented how you select an equilibrium or how you select initial conditions which will determine the equilibrium. Uh, there's a general belief among many economists that if you don't have a theory telling you how to select equilibria, you don't have a theory. Now, this is a story which is aggregate demand must exceed income. So it's a, it's a very simple little model. W is labor income, D is household profits, and I believe Q is capitalist profits, or retained earnings. Uh, consumption is simply a function. So households, they spend all their wages on consumption goods, and they spend a fraction alpha of the profits on consumption goods as well. Uh, investment depends on all the capitalist profits, but it actually exceeds it. So there's a parameter lambda. So total demand, which is consumption plus investment, so the government sector is not here, but it's just a simplification, is given by the entire right-hand side, where W plus alpha D is consumption, and 1 plus lambda Q is investment. Uh, there's a little bit of a trick here. So this is, this is Minsky, right? It's, uh, this is Minsky's model, if I understood it right. One of them, yeah. Yeah. Abandoned light, so, yeah. Right. Um, so, uh, the idea here is to make a distinction between ex ante and ex post, but these are just temporal uh, arguments, and I'm just looking at it here in a different way. I'm looking at it uh, as people make decisions based on past income. So, consumption is decided based on past labor income, past profits, investment is decided based on past uh, uh, capitalist profits, and then total demand is, then, is uh, output in period T which is a function of all this demand. Uh, again, by simply the expenditure approach or the income approach to GDP, we also have the GDP must be equal to in period T minus one, all the wages, all the profits uh, in the economy. So if we want that income or output is gonna be greater in period T than period T minus one, we need to have that uh, investment must exceed savings. So this is one of the conclusions. So alternatively, you can phrase it as demand must exceed income. Um, and one of the quotes in the paper is, for this to be possible, another source of finance has to exist. An increase in the money supply, where delta mt can either be money creation uh, or a change in velocity. And money creation here can be uh, narrow money or, or, or high-powered money, or, or it can be debt, I believe. Um, and it's also assumed that a proportion of household savings, which is 1 minus alpha times d, is presumed to be available for financing investment. So uh, then we'll have the, this additional investment that it must finance, which is lambda times Q, has to be equal to the increase in money supply plus whatever was made available by the private sector. 
or alternatively, you get the condition there that we must have an expansion in money in each and every period in order for income to grow. Uh, I'm saying that this is nice, uh, but it's not novel. Uh, I'm taking a very, very standard model in, in macroeconomics. It's called the cash and advance model by, by uh, the second most sinister neoclassical, Robert Lucas. Um, the idea here, and this is, so this is microfinance, the idea is that you spend and that generates income. The problem is for the individual, he cannot, that income is not de facto disposable immediately. It will actually become disposable with a bit of a time lag. This time lag can be a second, it doesn't matter. The important thing, there is a time lag from that, that you sold your goods or your labor or whatever you sell from, you can actually have that money disposable to you. We have a household budget constraint. I'm not going to spend too much time on this. Uh, this is, whoops, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> um, it's okay. Okay, good, yeah, I got it. Uh, we have the household budget constraint, which is simply some bonds, nominal interest rates, this is income, but this is income that is actually uh, received in the previous period, but it's disposable first in the current period. Uh, this is some taxes, I just included it to, to make it relatively ge general. Uh, this is consumption, so this is real consumption, multiplied by the price level, that's normal consumption. This is bonds purchased today, and this is just hoarding of money or excess cash holdings. We have a government budget constraint which looks the same. On the left-hand side, you have government expenditures. In nominal terms, it's government spending plus uh, interest payments on debt. Uh, we have the deficit, taxes, and senior rush, which is the last term, and that's introduction of, of uh, high-powered money to the economy. I can combine these two constraints to one consolidated budget constraint for the economy. We have bond market clearing, which means that since there's no investment, or investment is zero in this model, just to make it simple, like we can include equity or whatever you want, the message is going to be the same. Bond market clearing means that all the bonds held by the private sector is debt issued by the government. So that's going to banish those terms. Uh, we also have goods market clearing that all the output produced is either consumed by the private sector or the government. So this is simply nominal income. Uh, then we have that everything that was, all the income that is received today, uh, it should be, sorry, everything here should be. Uh, minus one, PT minus one, YT minus one. Because that was all the revenues that was generated yesterday, which is income today. So then we have that the difference between nominal GDP in the present and in the past is equal to the change in money minus what it, whatever is hoarded. So this is money that is not being spent. So I'm denoting nominal income as capital Y, so real income is, is um, uh, lowercase y and, and capital income is capital Y. And we have the conclusion that in order for income to grow, uh, the change in money must be greater than the hoarding of cash. So the introduction in the money in the economy must be greater than the hoarding of cash. Uh, hoarding of cash in, in, in the model of, of uh, Steve is simply equal to profits uh, that are not being spent on consumption, that are being saved, but that are not available for investment. So these two conditions, so this is just a corollary of one of the most standard monetary models uh, in which in order for nominal income to grow, uh, we need to have expansions in money. Um, of course, you can have real income growing in, as well, even if money isn't growing because you can have falling prices. Um, <clears throat> what about endogenous money? So this is the idea that banks create money out of nothing. Uh, I very much agree with that statement. 
but not all the way there. I don't believe banks are as um, omnipotent as the central bank in the economy. They do face some constraints. Um, so where do I disagree with Steve here? Uh, well, the quote here, which, which much is built on, is uh, that in the real world, banks extend credit, creating deposits in the process, and look for reserves later. Uh, but Alan Holmes did not say in the real world, banks mindlessly and recklessly extend credit, and they don't care that they have to get reserves later. In fact, the, the very fact that you do something today and you will bear the cost in the future means that you should have some sort of forward-looking behavior. The fact that the cost will be imposed afterwards means that forward-looking behavior should be central to the analysis. But this is actually what is excluded. Uh, also, I think that if firms want to extend credit, there must be a demand for credit. Demand is related to the rate of interest. It's demanded, related, of course, to uh, aggregate demand in the economy as well. Uh, when firms extend credit, they better have deposits to cover their ri the rise in loans. The cost of deposits, I mean, even if banks do generate deposits in the process, the single individual banks need to make sure to get profits and there will be competition across banks for that. Uh, the cost of deposit depends on the rate of interest, normally the federal funds rate. Um, and a bank that cares about profits um, will care about prices. And I'm saying that in Keynes' framework, they care about neither. Um, Banks are not entirely unconstrained here. Apart from credit demand and deposit supply, there are reserve requirements, there are capital requirements, and I do find it a little bit hard to believe that banks can create deposits on a one-to-one -one basis. Why do I say that? Well, I believe some currency is not immediately deposited. Some currency actually circulate in the economy, and that will make the equations sort of break down or not hold fully. So you might need to get reserves from the central bank, and even for the, um, for the, um, uh, private sector to create money. Uh, you can always have a collapse in money, I don't doubt that, to an arbitrary extent. It's just letting banks stop lending. Uh, but expanding money cannot be done uh, unconstrained. Uh, so then we'll reach the last part, debunking keynonomics. I'm going to be uh, relatively quick here. Uh, we have one of the key equations. It's income plus the change in debt or the rate of growth in debt is equal to GDP plus net asset turnover. Uh, I'm not really sure, I mean, so in, in the ca cash and advance model, you don't really have a problem here where uh, income and expenditures differ because whatever income you have, um, or whatever expenditures you make in the current period, it would be income. The fact that it's disposable with a period lag is different. When you aggregate statistics, you're not going to have a problem with that. Uh, I'm not sure why Keen is so troubled about this, but he seems to be. Uh, so to address this inconsistency, I suppose, I suppose a lot of people have been critical about this, but so to address this inconsistency, Steve assumes that uh, debt is injected in discrete time intervals. So this capital D here is debt and there's a delta because D takes a discrete jump, so the amount of debt jumps up. And as this happens finitely many times in a given interval, uh, we have that if we integrate, if we measure uh, uh, income and expenditures over a time interval, they will coincide. I'm writing here that if anything, this is inconsistent. If uh, capital D, debt, takes discrete jumps, it's not continuous with respect to time. It's actually discontinuous with respect to time. Uh, the derivative does not exist. If you would try to take derivatives, it would be equal to infinity. Um, of course, either that means that the equation above is wrong, or it means that uh, GDP will jump up uh, uh, to an infinitely large number. Uh, 
a way out of this would say would be to say it's not debt that takes a discrete jump, it's the change in debt. Of course, that invalidates the second equation in which you have the second derivative. So if the first derivative is discontinuous, the second derivative doesn't exist. So one of these uh, would be is inconsistent with that theory. So um, that's why you wouldn't be able to have this type of relationship. So this is the graph that, that was shown previously. Um, the only way also, if you look at this graph, you see that GDP, which if we look at the first equation here, you see that um, even if I would look at a discrete jump in the rate of change in debt, I would have a discrete jump in GDP, assuming everything else constant, but it wouldn't be permanent, so you wouldn't have anything that looks like this graph. So it cannot be a discrete jump, temporary discrete jump in debt, it has to be a permanent increase in the rate of debt in order to have something like this. Um, so I, I mean, I asked myself how the graph was generated and I suspect it's generated in a drawing program rather than simulated in a mathematical program because a mathematical program would object to all of this. Uh, a, a last point here uh, is that the simple cash and advance model, if I would work a, give it a, a minute more, I'm going to have that one equilibrium condition that will hold is what you may know as a quantity equation. It's mv is equal to py. So money times the velocity of money is equal to the price level times output. Money times the velocity is equal to nominal output. Uh, this to me, so I've been working quite a lot with these models, this to me at least suggests that velocity may be as important. And money here can be broadly interpreted. It doesn't have to be high power money. It can be anything endogenously generated. But it does suggest to me that velocity may be as important as money itself. And if you just look at a graph, I haven't calculated any correlations because I, uh, I didn't have time. Uh, but if you look at the correlation, you, you can see that this is the velocity of M2 uh, given by the Federal uh, Board of Governors and it's the unemployment rate in the United States. I don't think I need to emphasize that this is a very, very close negative correlation. Uh, of course, uh, I would expect the velocity of M2 be highly correlated with debt. But of course, in order to assess which theory is actually the dominating theory, you need to control for confounding factors. If you want to make the case that it's debt driving GDP, you better control for, you need to look at conditional correlations and not raw correlations. Okay, that's it. Thank you very much.
Okay, thank you very much. Um, that's very, both very stimulating presentations. Um, I was a little surprised, I think, that uh, you described Steve's model as a standard neoclassical, standard neoclassical model, which, uh, which is very interesting. Um, we're going to open up for questions for the next 20 minutes. And we have a microphone, so if you could um, pop up your hand, uh, questions to either speaker. Um, yeah, for 20 minutes, and Joseph will bring the microphone around. Okay, questions? That's where you're struck dumb. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll just talk about it. Don't worry about the microphone. Yeah. Pardon the mess, it's just the best I've got at the moment. You can speak up. Yeah, yeah sorry. Yeah. It's, it's not broad, it's not amplifying, so you can just talk loudly to the audience and. Oh, I see. That'll I'll talk down. That's right. right. Yeah, yeah. I'll talk. I'll talk loud. Yeah. Um, I, I, I want to thank Steve for an absolute tour de force. Um, the great advantage of Steve's work, like reading Mint Steve, or indeed re reading. Winkelsley and, and the Wilds book Monetary Economics. I, I'm staggered, by the way, that Pontus didn't seem to have heard of Winkelsley. He was a professor in his own department for 15 years until me. No, no, I, I had it, just didn't, didn't remember his first name. Yeah, okay. Oh, right. We're not on a first name basis. <laughs> you, 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 you would have been had he still been alive, by the way. It's very, very personable. Um, great advantage of those pieces of, piece of work, you know, including Steve's, they seem to fit what's happened in the when Potter starts telling a story, it seems to be a world of mathematics. You know, he worries about things, but whether functions are continuous and differential. So I, I'd like to ask Pontus what he thinks has actually happened to the UK and indeed you know, other major economies over the last five years. What's, what's the explanation for a series of events which are virtually unprecedented? certainly in the last 50, 60 years, perhaps for a century or more. Yeah, so, I mean, first of all, I, I don't see myself as obsessed with mathematics. You may not know, but Professor Keane has actually written a book called Debunking Economics, which is about the errors, the mathematical errors of neoclassical economics. So I think it's fair game to discuss Oh, yeah. Things. Yeah, I'm not um, worried about using mathematics yeah. at all. Um, yeah, I'm just asking about balance. Sorry, I'm yeah. just getting no, no, I, so, I mean, about the crisis, what I think happened, I think there was a lot of uh, uh, bad debt that was issued. It was a Minsky moment, it was deleveraging, it was people tightening their belts. And when you tighten, your spending is my income and my spending is your income. I completely, completely subscribe to that story. Um, I don't think I said anything substantive that, that was wrong with these people. Um, then, then, you know, I, might, I agree with Krupen that the fact that you lend money that is increased, increased doesn't per se uh, mean that we increase demand. If I spend less to give money to my mother and she spends it instead, that's a wash. Now, it, it has to go, and I think that's actually emphasized in your papers, it it's important that it goes through the banking sector. 
Because one, one landing that's, is between... That's learnable yeah. funds. Your spending power goes down to make your mothers go up. Exactly. I'm saying you go shopping and your mother doesn't get affected because you use your credit card. Right. Right. Very different. As soon as it goes through the banking sector, it's a yeah. little bit of a different story. Makes a huge so, difference, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so um, you know, I, I, I think that the financial crisis was definitely a, a monetary crisis. I don't believe it was uh, any drop in knowledge, any drop in technology. It could have been some credit supply that actually tightened, which I think firms had trouble getting funding for projects. But to be honest, I think it was more credit demand. The firms didn't want to fund an investment. Yep. Another one down the front here. We uh, just passed the go. There's my pardon. The microphone's being so kludgy, but it's uh, it'll hurt. Thank you. <coughs> yep. Pass them both over. Yeah. Just for the sake of recording, it'll be up on my blog in a couple of days' time. Okay. Just pick um, up my last week ago. Okay. I just wanted to ask you, um, following your model, what are the kind of recommendation you would give to go out of the crisis? Standard. It largely comes to needing to abolish large parts of the private debt that were created over the last America case over the last 50 years. If you go back and look historically in America's economy, Minsky argues that it passed from what he called a financially robust society to a financially fragile one in roughly 1966. And you look back historically and find he actually picked exactly when the Dow Jones peaked in real terms and then had a 15 year decline. But what you had was from that point in time, American private debt started the uh, Second World War, the end of the Second World War at 45% of GDP. Between 60 and 70, 1969 and 70, it cracked 100%. It's now 300%. Now I'd say probably up to 200% of that debt is finance effectively speculative behaviour rather than investment, which is what you want debt for. Uh, but you couldn't obviously abolish that all in one go. But what I'd be in favour of is what I call a modern debt jubilee, where you find a way of reducing the debt in existence without penalising savers. I talk about that in, in my, on my manifesto page of my blog. Because we used to have debt resets as part of human society every 50 years. You look back at the Mesopotamian society. Uh, Michael Hudson is the expert on that. Michael Hudson and Cornelia Wunsch have done the research into the original tablets, have found that the, they had a, a, the idea of an exponential increase in debt, which they were using fractions, compounding fractions, matched to a logarithmic, a, a sigmoidal change in the level of agricultural productivity. And then at the 50 year mark, they went bang on the debt level and set it back to zero again. They realised this is tendency for the level of debt, particularly you know, serious rates of interest back then, debt to rise, reach an impossible level, and then have to be totally abolished. So it actually built into the structure of society, abolishing the debt. That was easy to do back then because there's one family of moneylenders effectively. And it became institutionalised. The first way they did it involved a very, very, very strong haircut for the uh, moneylender. But after that it became an institutionalised thing and Mesopotamian society right through to Jewish society and so on. Um, we're locked up in believing you have to repay debt. You, know, you can't not repay your debt. But if we, what we're doing, we're honouring debt that should never have been created in the first place. If you look at the debt that the, the housing sector generated in America, the subprime bubble, that was all just basically financing gambling. It wasn't increasing productive capacity. It was totally wasteful generation of debt for speculative purposes. And you do get the short-termism in banks that will do that. I agree entirely they're motivated by profit. I also know they're motivated by profit on a three-month to a yearly cycle. And if they believe you can make a huge profit now and get out before the shit hits the fan, uh, having met enough bankers, they'll do it. 
So we have this tendency in the banking sector to do that, and it led to this huge overhang of debt. So we have to re reduce the private debt. But the great problem is the focus of economic theory and economic uh, debate amongst politicians as well is on reducing public debt. And if we have a public debt reduction now, I think what we'll have is actually a return to deleveraging by the private sector and a return to crisis. So we have to find a way of abolishing a large part of the private debt. Okay, we'll take another question over here. Yeah, just move the mic so thanks. It's going to sound dreadful on the, on the machine anyway. Uh, is this one more? No, just to put it down on the table, just talk, up. Just talk away. Well, right. that's your recorder. Oh. Okay. Yeah. That'll, that'll be deafening. Okay. Put it on the ground. Okay. Yeah, okay. Just talk away for the audience. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, well, I do want to say that uh, I was very, very impressed uh, with a beautifully presented uh, uh, presentation by, by Steve. Uh, very well articulated uh, some aspects of the theory of endogenous money. Um, uh, my only questions really are, uh, first of all, you talked about cycles and you gave us a model which shows yeah. the cycles, but in the so-called real world, there aren't cycles like that. They're not regular. It's obviously very chaotic. Yep. And, and what I think is missing from your uh, analysis is in one word, because I don't want to extend this, is regulation. I mean, I think, I don't think you even mentioned the word regulation, but it's absolutely essential to understand the banking system. You've got to look at regulation. It's absolutely key as to you know, what we mean by money and how the banks manipulate money. So that, that's all I have to say about Steve's presentation. On Pontus's one, um, I have to say this was typical neoclassical response. First of all, in general equilibrium, there is no role for money. That's the, that's the key aspect of the equilibrium. Frank, Frank Hahn showed this years ago. Uh, and secondly, general equilibrium is an intellectual thing. It can be used to support both sides of economic debates depending on what assumptions are relaxed. For example, the assumption of, of information, whether it's symmetric or asymmetrical, or the assumption of transport costs or the assumption of the extent of crowding out. It goes on and on. And therefore, uh, it's a very useful way of generating papers and bringing on your career of getting promotion, etc., but has nothing to say about the real world because it's incapable of falsification. It's as simple as that. Okay. Well, what's the question? Why do you... Why do Give this stuff to us. Why do you teach this stuff? Why are you with this? Do you agree or what? I, I, I disagree with everything you just said. <laughs> and you have nothing to back it up with apart from a sequence of statements. And so I disagree. And what are you respect with what you said? Nothing. I think I, I made an effort to back my statements. I, I think up. I should. I, I, I might come in now with a, a bit of a reply to what you said because I think it is worth trying to get. I like, I like your term of a, of a metrodox. Okay, we're going to disagree about technology all the way through, but um, I've never doubted, and I'm not doubting you here, the sincerity of neoclassical economists. This is one thing which we get angry about what happens inside our own departments, and I've been through a fair bit of this as well. You know my own personal history. But I've never doubted that you're trying to build, make a better world. That is a large part of what motivates people. They're not malicious. It's, it's, it's a difference of belief systems about how the economy functions, which then gets tied in a set of technology 
which actually is the wrong technology for analyzing a dynamic system. Now, you just asked a question about, about, about cycles. So I want to show you something here. This is commonplace in, in science. This is my program, Minsky. But what I've built here is a model of, the common model of meteorology. Have you heard of the, have you heard of the Lorenz, Lorenz equations at all? Have you heard of the butterfly effect? OK, OK. This was a set of equations that was used, developed back in 1963 by a meteorologist, Lorenz. I've forgotten his first name too. I should know it up by heart, but I've forgotten. Uh, Lorenz was annoyed about the use of equilibrium equations in meteorology. And he said, we know that the most important effects in the weather system are nonlinear. So he said he wanted to build a model of nonlinear dynamics to see what happened. And this is uh, actually taken the equations here. I'll just read them, read them out for you. But this is done in flowcharting software. Has anybody ever seen software like this before? Flowcharts? Shake your head or, or nod. OK. This is commonplace in engineering. If you're doing an engineering degree, you'll be learning a program like this in day one. Okay. Now, what it lets you do is define a set of differential equations as a flowchart. So this is actually an integral block. And I can read it backwards by saying the rate of change of x is y minus x multiplied by a. That's a visual equation. The rate of change of y is b minus z multiplied by x minus y. And the rate of change of z is y times x minus c multiplied by z. Now, a, b, x, y, and z are three elements of the behavior of a, of a fluid. It's actually based, it's a model actually of a, of a hot plate, effectively, with a layer of water and seeing what's going to be the x and y dynamics given the temperature gradient. That's all it is. And it's derived from what are called the Navier-Stokes equations that are the fundamental equations for describing fluid flow under pressure and heat. So it's like a taking a Taylor series expansion but going to the second order, not just stopping at a linear. Now Lorenz built this equation and then simulated it, of course not using graphical technologies back in the 1960s. And I'm going to simulate it for you now in its equilibrium. Exciting, isn't it? <laughs> Nothing happens. That wasn't the set of values that Lorenz chose. Uh, you don't choose equilibrium values when you're working out a dynamic system. You choose out of equilibrium values and see what happens because in genuine dynamics you're never in equilibrium. Markets never clear. They're changing, but they never clear. There's balance of supplies, but they never disappear. You don't go down the road and find there are no cars in the car yard every evening. I'm just going to change one of these parameters from an equilibrium, which happens to be zero, to 0 0.01. So I've moved one, one of the three variables 1% away, 0.01 away from its equilibrium. Pardon the scale changing. This is new software. We've just keep on, uh, we haven't quite got all the development bugs out of it yet. That's what I'm trying to get some money from Kickstarter to do. Now I simulate it. Hang on a sec, let's stop it. Simulate it. Let's look at it on a large scale. This system has three equilibria, all of which are unstable. If you start a tiny fraction away from any of them, you'll be blasted into outer space by But rather than breaking down, which is the usual neoclassical idea dating from John Hicks about what happens with an unstable system, you get cycles that are, that are non-periodic non cycles that are unpredictable. That's showing the XY dynamics. If I go back over here, pardon me, that's the uh, temperature fluctuation dynamics. The cycles there are aperiodic. They'll never repeat. You'll never get the same two values ever, as long as you simulate it. So you, that's the aperiodic stuff. Just the structure of the model is not is uh, quite nonlinear. But incredibly simple. That's this model with three variables and three parameters. 
and yet it generates this sort of behaviour. Now, if you're watching that model and trying to work out which way is it going to go next, good luck. Okay? It's, that's what they mean by chaos and complexity. You have a system that's completely deterministic and you can't predict its next move, as you can see it doing that right now. So that's the sort of thinking and intelligence we need in economics. We need to get away from equilibrium. So my main problem about the neoclassical metrodox is you haven't quite got there yet. This, this also means that it's impossible to learn from history. Huh? It's impossible to learn from history. No, you could never run any statistical regression. No, not true. Uh, that's why we won't predict the impact of the Hurricane Sandy. You have to embrace complexity to be able to get the prediction window you can do. Now, there's a window of predictability you do have, which is what's called the veto shadowing hypothesis in chaos theory. So it is possible to predict within a window. Now the question is, is the window big enough to work with the system you're in? Now if you can give a prediction in the weather that gives you a seven day prediction, that's good enough. If you get economics like six months to a year, that's pretty damn good for the purposes which we use it. So it's not possible to say we can't predict. And obviously, of course, the biggest prediction failure possibly in the history of humanity was neoclassical predictions about the global economy in 2007. You remember, OECD models well-formed, dynamic stochastic, generally equivalent, stock flow consistent. Their predictions were, and I quote from the OECD, our forecasts indeed remain quite benign. You know, so you can't say this failed to predict. The, you've got to acknowledge there's a no. huge failure prediction okay. in their classic. But it wasn't like the heterodox and unison predicted the crisis either. I mean, many people were completely silent about that and didn't say anything. I mean, there, there is a few notable exceptions. This but I think that goes for both camps, with Nuri and Rubini, Paul Krugman was vocal on TV as well. Like, uh, uh, late, like, later on. I mean, the only people I'd say that had, had the credentials for saying they predicted it ahead. I saw a recording of him in 2005, yes. Who? Paul Krugman in 2005, when he said it on the news. Uh, I will have to debate that one with you later. Have a good uh, I, I <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, we'll back it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. It, was, it wasn't like it was no the, the thing is, what, what, what I'm working from, because of the way they're working in third business paper, the people who saw this coming, and there were quite a few, all included the financial sector and banking bit in their models. The ones who didn't see it coming were the ones who left that out. Now, in general, the heterodox community, speaking as somebody who spends a hell of a lot of time talking to people in that area, the general feeling in that area that something big is going to happen, not looking good. Only a few loudmouths like me went out and said it publicly. It's not just a question of the, the analysis by far. Neoclassicals were extremely happy about the state of the global economy, had themselves on the back, and saw Ben Krugman saying, uh, uh, Benanke saying, welcome change in the economy about the state of the economy during the Great Moderation. You look at the papers on the Great Moderation, the AER, and so on. It was all patting themselves on the back. People who were saying there's worries from the heterodox community, both Austrians at one extreme, both Chinese at another, what we had in common was focusing on the banking sector and this equilibrium. And that's why I'm saying, to be truly metrodox, you've got to abandon equilibrium. And that's what wasn't done in most of your analysis. Now, the Lucas paper you showed me, you're comparing what we call the Keen model. It wasn't the Keen model, it was Minsky's model. And Minsky wrote that model in 1957, which is 25 years before the Lucas paper. I'm very glad I didn't know that Lucas paper went that far. That's good. You know? That actually is a non-equilibrium conclusion at the end. My main thing is to say we have to abandon this obsession with equilibrium and optimality. If we don't do that, we're going to be stuck in the dark age permanently. So it's a technical change I'd like to see neoclassical economists embrace, and that'll take you away from optimality as well, because you don't get optimal optimality in a dynamic evolutionary system. Those sorts of changes you can become heterodox.
So just, uh, I'm keen to allow some more interaction from the floor, so a quick response upon this. Okay, can I respond now? Yeah, yeah, respond now and then we'll take a question. I mean, the only equilibrium I'm putting in is that if the private sector is holding T-bills, the government has issued T-bills. I mean, that's accounting identities. So yeah, I didn't impose it. I also, I also yeah. said that everything that is produced is either consumed, invested, or consumed by yeah, the government. Yeah. It has to be one of those. But so it's, a, it's accounting identity. Yeah. What people are so disgusted about in this model is a bunch of budget constraints. There's no optimizing behavior, a bunch yeah. of budget constraints. Yeah. Yeah. There's no optimizing behavior, and I'm stating obvious things. If people don't like that, either they don't like that budgets have to hold, or uh, they just don't like it because it's neoclassical. The conclusions are the same. That was Fisher equation, the, yeah. the uh, quantity of money. Yeah. Uh, if you want to think that's a disgrace, well, I think you have to fight the uh, problem that resources are scarce and budgets must be had. Okay? And whatever is spent has to be received by someone else. But it's also it's very, it's very it's 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 where. Okay, I'm just going to jump in if yeah, I, sure. I may. Yeah. 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 Are there any more questions from the floor? There was yeah. one here that we. Okay, we'll go through. Thank you. Um, hello, um, sorry, my questions may sound very naive because I'm not an economist, I'm an engineer. Hey, real <laughs> well this, this kind of representation is really typical of what we see in physics and in yeah. field theory. But my, I would just like to question uh, the fact that since you really disagree that neoclassical mental models are flawed or not, do you still believe that the use of mathematics in economics is relevant? What is your point of view on the critic of the on the use of mathematics in the economics? I so do you believe it yeah. should be taken as a moral science or humanity? or that mathematics can still be used to aesthetics. I, I think there's, there's two roles for mathematics and economics. We, have, we, we are always going to have to build models. We develop them mathematically or verbally is the question. And then look at people's capacity to follow a verbal model through. And the only economist that ever seen can follow a verbal model from beginning to end without making an error is Joseph Schumpeter. And Schumpeter once made a joke, he had three ambitions in life. To be the world's greatest economist, the world's greatest horse rider, and the world's greatest lover. <laughs> and he concluded he never did it with sand horses. I think he was the world's greatest economist. He never, never made an error in the logical framework he built. Everybody else does. So when I started building the software because I was having a debate with the post-Hansing community who believed banks, firms couldn't borrow money from a, from a bank and make a profit. And I said, look, you're making a stock flow confusion there. So I had to build a mathematical model that uh, is part of my financial system now to show that the amount of money you borrow is dollars, whereas the amount of money it generates as income is dollars per unit of time, and the stock that's borrowed in the first instance doesn't control the amount of the flow that can occur at the time. So without the mathematics, I could never have answered that question. And that's, that's, that's the right role of mathematics. But you have to use the right mathematics. Now the trouble is that the neoclassical school began with people like Volrad, Jevons, Menger and, and, and Marshall, who all believed that they were doing static equilibrium analysis because dynamics was too hard. And if you read particularly J.B. Clark in 1898 talking about the future of economic theory, he argued that the great becoming progress in economics will be the stating of our problems in dynamic terms. Now, dynamic, stochastic, general equilibrium models are neither dynamic nor general. Okay. They are basically comparative statics time slots t, t minus 1, t plus 1 just replaces this pair of lines intersecting in another line being drawn over the top of the other lines. It's fundamentally still comparative statics just dressed up. 
It's not general because it doesn't include multiple sectors. Even when you see people have got multiple sectors in them, they don't have input output dynamics. You've got to have that as well. I'm not showing you can do that in a dynamic setting. So there's a whole lot of things that you can do mathematically. You have to do mathematically. But then what I think you're trying to achieve is not an empirically accurate predict the future type outcome, but a qualitative description of capitalism. And I believe we can get most of the way there with mathematics. We need mathematics to do it. We have to use the right mathematics and respect it. And again, I'm very much against economists teaching each other mathematics because I've seen so many disasters happening as a result of that. They don't learn the overall strengths and limitations of mathematics. I've had embarrassing situations with colleagues asking me, for example, why they couldn't solve a seven-sector a seven general equilibrium model of the economy symbolically. I had to take them back and show them that there's no such thing as a proof of any a solution to any polynomial above order four. You know. So it's, it's amazing what economists will do by not knowing the limitations of mathematics. So I think we've actually abused it. That's why my chapter in my book about economic, about mathematics is called, any, anybody who's not an Elton John fan here? Or, it's called, don't shoot me, I'm on the piano. It's the piano player who makes the mistakes. And I think neoclassical economics has abused mathematics very badly, rather than using it effectively. And I'd like to see it use more mathematics, but use the right mathematics learn from complexity theory, and then we'll get away from these silly disputes because ultimately we're both trying to work out how the economy functions. But well, maybe people can judge from the, for themselves after the presentation. <laughs> okay, well, we've got time for one last question. Yeah, the gentleman down in front. Yes, sir. Um, I, I'm an engineer too. Oh, good. And, uh, <laughs> thank you. I, I really appreciate what you said about uh, uh, you know, the level of uh, private debt yeah. and the need for a jubilee year to, yeah. to abolish the debt. And also, I think I go back to what the gentleman earlier was saying about uh, regulation. Uh, I, I think my, my reservation about economics is that uh, you know it, it's it's good to use mathematics, but I think mean, there, there, a lot of the assumptions need to be examined. Mm. Uh, assumptions behind these models, you know, such as uh, efficient market hypothesis and so mm. on, you know, which uh, uh, which are really uh, uh, questionable. Mm. Uh, but my question goes back to regulation. I mean, what what do you see? Are the prospects of uh, putting in the regulations that are needed to to, to keep the, uh, the ship on even keel? I think we'll get there. All, all, we're taking a lot longer than the Great Depression because in 1932-33 there was a commission called the Pecora Commission that tore apart the defences of the banks very brilliantly and led to Roosevelt's inauguration where Roosevelt uh, said, actually literally quite said, sorry, let's, we should throw the money lenders out of the temple. And one of the first things, as well as a new deal, was shutting down the banks into the bank holiday and going through all banks' accounts and totally reorganising them. And then the dominance went from being the banks being politically dominant to the public effectively being politically dominant through Roosevelt's programs. So we've actually had that delay. We still are kowtowing to the bankers rather than telling them what to do and putting them in jail, which a large number of them should have gone to. And quite a few did back in the 1930s and quite a few did after the savings and loans crisis when Bill Black was the man in charge of it rather than the wimps we have now. So um, we need that, and I think we will get there ultimately, but we're taking over a decade to get there. And in the meantime, the pain and agony that's causing in Europe, particularly with the imposing austerity of the Maastricht Treaty, is, is, is horrible. So uh, my fear is we're going to see really, really bad political and social change in Europe coming out of this long before we finally realise it's actually the banking sector that deserves to be in the dock, not welfare recipients from government handouts. Honest, did you want to comment on that? No, no. Okay, great. Well, uh, our time's up. Um, let's give uh, one final round of applause. <laughs>